Before we get started with the message, I got to show you a picture um, from this week at our PFC Kids night. Uh, we had people come and uh, walk the kids through a, uh, a whole love feast. And of course, in love feast, we we recognize you know uh, what it is that Christ has done for us. And there's this picture that uh, that got captured of uh, two of our little ones doing the feet washing here. And it's just this great moment, you know, of, uh, of realizing that when, when an ancient practice that God has called us to gets reborn in a new generation, it kind of shows us things that maybe we miss. Today, as we go into resurrection, same thing, same thing. As we look through the eyes of those who experienced it for the first time in the story of Lazarus, let it just speak to us. Let it speak to us, okay? Join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for um, this moment right here. Each one of us, each one of us, God, has things in our mind. You know there are things that you're working on in our hearts and our minds that don't submit fully to who you are yet. Just by nature of our spiritual maturity or immaturity, that there is still more for us to understand, to see, to know, to repent of, to release, to confess. And our prayer today is that, God, you would reveal more fully who you are so that we can more fully see you and can more fully be transformed into your image. Reveal yourself, please, today in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a few years ago, Colton was still, um, our youngest son was still a little guy. Um, I mean, that's all relative, but he was obviously more little than he, he is now. And he, he's a kind of sarcastic guy now. He, he has a good humor, a good witty humor, but he... Um, this was before that. He was just real innocent, you know. And b- back then he made us laugh all the time, not because he was trying to, just because it was Colton. And uh, one day Jen asked him what he wanted for breakfast. And we had life cereal in there. And he said, I want life. And she said, life? You can have life abundantly. Do you want life abundantly? And he's like, yeah, can I have it with milk? <laughs> and it's funny, when it comes to uh, the life that Christ has granted us, when it comes to living the fullness of the life that he's given to us, sometimes we don't fully grasp what that actually means and, and, and what that is. Uh, he's given us life, life abundantly, life eternally. What does that look like? Uh, some of you may know the story about Louis Zamperini. Um, and maybe you've seen the movie Unbroken. Um, that recently came out. I haven't seen it. I rented it because I wanted to see it before preaching a message that had a starting illustration with it um, and didn't get a chance to. Uh, I did catch the last 10 minutes of uh, the Nova game, though. Bob? Yeah. And, um, and so I didn't get to see it, but, I, but it's based on a book, and it's about this guy, Louis Zamperini, um, who he was an Olympic athlete, um, before World War II, and he ran in the games in Berlin, and apparently he ran so fast that he ended up having an audience with Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Woohoo! You know, and uh, but a few years later, he ended up in the war, and he was a pilot in the army. And if you've seen the movie, you're like, "Duh, Tim, just watch the movie and get on with the sermon." Um, that's probably all in there. I don't know. So he 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 and his friends are. Um, flying, looking for a downed B-52, and their plane goes down. And uh, a few of his friends survive with him, and they're on a raft for over a month and a half. And they're on this raft, and they're living on water and birds. 
and they survive for over a month and a half on this raft, and then they're captured by the Japanese. And then the Japanese uh, camp that they're in, they proceed to be tortured over, and he in particular, tortured for uh, two years, brutally tortured for like, for like two years. And of course, the, the theme of, of the story is the, the resilience and, and the, the triumphal nature of the human spirit. And there's so many stories that are written about people who are overcomers. You know, people who, when things come against them, they rise up against it. When people try to beat them down, they're not broken, but they continue to rise up. And it makes for great Hollywood, especially in Philly, where we got the story of Rocky. You know, like that's what, that's what Hollywood's made of is these stories. But there's, there's a, a weird thing for me about this story is I didn't see the movie. I didn't read the autobiography or the book Unbroken. I've only read one thing about this guy, the first time that I heard about him was when somebody forwarded me an email that had his obituary. And that's where I read about him. You see the irony in that? That the whole story is the triumph of the human spirit, how it can't be broken, and yet the first I read about him is in his obituary. There's irony in that, of course. But death wasn't his only limit. Apparently, when he came back from the war, he had serious post-traumatic stress. And he was majorly affected by what happened to him over there. And, and for years, he was, he was in the midst of really struggling with that. And someone invited him to go to a Billy Graham crusade out in California. And what happened when he was there is he knelt down and he gave his life to Christ. And apparently when he gave his life to Christ, what he testifies to is that something started to massively change in his life. Even in that moment, he felt something happening in his body and something started to transform in him and his heart began to transform. And when it did, we know, uh, you know, the story of this man is that he was given a whole new perspective on life. He was given a whole new life. And so he begins to, to figure out how to get back to Japan in order to forgive his captors and those who had, who had tortured him because he was seeing life from a completely different angle. The only thing about the obituary that, I, that I, when I read, I realized the obituary got one thing wrong, and I don't even know this guy, but it got one thing wrong, the date of his death. Because it said in 2014 is when he died, but you know the thing is, is when his chest stopped moving like this, that wasn't the moment that he died. Not according to our text today. Our text today says this. It says, Jesus speaks to the people and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never, shall never what? Die. Shall never die. And then his next question is, do you believe this? If we are in Christ, we shall never die. Do we believe this? Well, when I read that obituary, it said that in 2014, Louis Zamperini died. But when I read the story of his life, I understand that somewhere many, many years before, he had already died. When he knelt in front of the cross at a Billy Graham crusade and he gave his life to Christ, he said, I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And that new birth that he was given, that new life that he was given, was not the triumph of the human spirit. It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's an eternal spirit, and that's an eternal life that doesn't die. And when that chest stopped moving, that was not death. That was laid to rest. And that body, while laid to rest for a moment, is not death because it will be resurrected. And that body will come back and life will continue. 
Death means finality, means over. If we are in Christ, that body is not dead. It is laid to rest, but it will resurrect. That is the power of resurrection. See, what happens is that that unbroken, irrepressible nature that that we so want to hear the stories of, that we can rise above, that, that nothing can beat us down, that doesn't come through grit. That's not what it comes through. Hollywood tells us that the irrepressible spirit comes through grit, through human triumph. You can be anything you want if you just try hard enough. That's not where the irrepressible life comes from. The irrepressible life doesn't even come through faith, although it plays its part. The abundant life, the full life, the irrepressible joy and abundance and peace, the love that overflows, life that bubbles over, it comes from one place and one place only. It comes from the person and the presence of Jesus. All life is in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no life. Anything that seems like life that isn't inside of Jesus is fading like a flower. It's like grass that pops up and withers and dies. It's a phantom. In the eyes of eternity, it is not actually life. Inside of Christ is life and life abundantly. And where Christ is, everything is different. Everything is different where Christ is, where Jesus is. That leads us to our text today, okay? And so what we're going to do um, with the remainder of our time is we're just going to walk down through the text, and we want to look a little more fully at what it means for life to be present through Jesus. So I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 11. It'll also be on the screen. Um, and we're going to start at the, the, right at the beginning of verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha, and, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Stop. We've got to process that a little bit. Got to, like, think about that. Because he loves Martha, and because he loves Mary, and because he loves Lazarus, when he finds out that Lazarus is dying in bed, he decides to stay where he is instead of go and be with him. Put that in the thinker for a little bit. And just process it. Why would Jesus, because he loves them, not go to see him when he's dying, particularly if he has the power to save him? You know the story, and you might have an answer because you know the story, but picture yourself with one of your family members dying and knowing that Jesus can come and heal, and because he loves you, he says he's not coming to help you. How do you feel about that? There's a lot of answers as to why Jesus doesn't go because of his love. What is it about love that keeps him from going in that moment? And there's a lot of really good answers that we can learn from to that question. But there's one in particular that I want to focus on today for a second, and that's this. 
If Jesus loves Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, then he wants to keep them connected to the source of all love. And what is the source of all love? Seriously. What is the source of all love? God is. Yeah, God is the source of all love. Jesus, when he walks on earth, he says, I will only do what my Father asks me to do. If Jesus went before it was time to go, before his Father wanted him to go, then he's going to run and try to fix a problem instead of submitting to what it is that his Father wanted him to do, and they will be disconnected from the source of love, from the source of life, because now, instead of him going to the one who can actually help, he instead is trying to do things on his own terms or on their terms. How often are we tempted to look at the circumstances around us and be distracted from what the Lord has called us to do because we see circumstances that seem urgent or seem like it all adds up, I gotta do this. And there's no greater limitation for us than that limitation of death. I mean, when you think about how we think and how we process and what our limitations are and what drives us. We look around at the natural world. We know that if I take this thing and I drop it right now, gravity is going to go and take it down. That did not surprise you that it went down. What would surprise you is if I dropped it, and I'm not going to do it right now because I can't do it. Lack of faith. If I, if I dropped it and it just stayed there, you know? But we have seen gravity work so many times that we know it works until all of a sudden Peter walked on water. You know, and, and we know that when my bank account gets to this place, my spending has to do this thing because that's wisdom. You know? You take what we've learned and the more we take experience and the more we take the wisdom, the more we apply that to the situation, the better life's going to go. You've got to take natural law. You have to take your experience and you have to use your brain as best you can to figure out how to get through this life. This entire story is telling us that there is another reality that's bigger than all of that. And it's the reality of being in Jesus of walking with God, and that what we thought were the parameters, what we thought were the limits, are not the limits. And our job is not primarily just to see the limits and then figure out what to do within those limits. Our job is to listen to the Lord and follow beyond anything that our brain tells us. Maybe you've heard of a, uh, of a man named John Kenneth Galbraith. Anybody heard of him? He was an economist, uh, a, apparently a real famous one, uh, and was a, um, a consultant to a number of different presidents. And uh, he wrote this autobiography, which I have not read, um, but I heard this story from the autobiography. And it was this time where he had had a really, really busy day, a busy couple of days, and he needed a nap. So he goes home. And he tells his housekeeper, Emily, he says, don't take any calls. Uh, take messages for all my calls. I really need a nap. So he goes to sleep. Lyndon Johnson calls. Literally calls his house. Emily answers the phone. And he says, hi, this is Lyndon Johnson. Put Ken Galbraith on the phone. And she says, I'm sorry, I can't, sir. He's taking a nap. And he says, this is Lyndon Johnson. I'm the president of the United States. True story put him on the phone. And she says, 
I'm sorry, Mr. President, you may be the President of the United States, but I don't work for you. I work for Ken Galbraith, and he told me not to wake him up at any cost. And apparently Lyndon Johnson was so excited about it that when he finally talked to Ken Galbraith, he's like, I want her on staff at the White House. <laughs> this is what Jesus does. Lazarus is dead. You've got to come. And he said, no, I don't have to. I have to listen to my father. Do not think for a second that the circumstances of your life determine what to do with your life. Until you have heard from God, do not move. Learn to hear the voice of God. Learn to walk in step with the Spirit of God, and he will lead you. If you seek God with all your heart, you will find him, and as he leads you, you will be led in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Follow him. Don't follow your mind. It will lead you astray. Don't follow your heart. It will lead you astray. Follow Jesus. He will lead you to life. Just like he followed his father. And it led to life. Let's keep reading. Verse 7, then after he had said this to the disciples, after, he said, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? See, Jesus had just come up where he's being stoned, down in Judea. Now he's back up north, and now Lazarus is back down in Judea. And they're saying, there's no way we can go back down there. They were just trying to stone you. What are they afraid of? death. Now, if Jesus had run and tried to go after Lazarus when it wasn't his time, what would he have been afraid of? The, the death of Lazarus, death. And now his disciples are saying, we can't go back down there. They're going to stone you. If he listens to them, what is he afraid of? Death. This is called the valley of the shadow of death, where there is death on this side and death on this side. And I am right in the middle. That's the valley of death. I will fear no evil. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What are you afraid of right now? What are you afraid of? Ask that question. Ask it deep for a second. Truly, what are you afraid of? What are you not sure if you can let go of? What do you really want to stay the same? Or what do you really want to change? What is it that, like, I'm looking for this thing or I'm scared of this thing, I'm worried about this? Like, what is the thing that could keep you up at night? What's the thing that could be taken from you that would really rock you? What is it that you're afraid of? What are we afraid of today? If we chase that fear, and if we respond and react to that fear, it is much more likely to come to fruition because we will step outside of the presence of the living God. And even if we, in our own strength, can resist 
to a degree, for a time, that fear coming to reality by me running away from that fear, what will happen is, is my heart will be burdened because I am the one in control trying to stop that thing from happening. And the stress that will be on me by trying to keep that from happening puts me in charge of my own life and makes me God. I don't want to be God. The weight of God is a very, very heavy weight. And what he calls us to is to trust him. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of death over here by if I don't do what it is that I, if I, if I do this, there's death is, if, if I don't do this, death is going to happen. If I don't do this, that thing's going to happen. If I don't go and do it, I know Lazarus is there and, and I just have to go do this thing and this thing's saying, you got to go do it. No, you don't have to do that unless God's telling you to. And over here, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that because it's scary. There's death there. You do have to do this because Christ has called you to it. And safety is being in the light and being in the light is being with God. Obedience. Obedience. It's trust. All right. Keep going. Skip down to verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, which is interesting after he had just said to them, this sickness does not lead to death, right? And for your sake... I am glad that I was not there. Hear that? For your sake, for the disciples' sake, again, out of love, I am glad that, you were, that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. Jesus knows now. He, he knows what's coming. You know, he knows that the stage is being set for the miraculous revealing of God's glory in this situation. In the, in the text of John, um, there are seven Miracles, seven big signs of Christ in the text of John, just like there are seven IMs. And you want some homework? Go and study the seven IMs and go and study the seven uh, signs of, uh, of uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus did way more than seven signs. There are seven that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write about because they're telling a story. And if you go and read, you'll understand the story more. You know, great homework, great study project to go after. This is the seventh sign. This is the culmination of the signs. And Jesus knows that what he's about to do is, I could be worried about the death of Lazarus, I could be worried about my own death, but I'm about to blow the roof off of what the limitations are in people's minds so that they can experience God in a whole different way. Signs and wonders are such an important part of the biblical narrative. When it comes to understanding the story of God, understanding that God gives signs is such a huge part of the narrative. And it's funny, in our world at times in the Christian church, signs and miracles have become a divisive issue at times. And it's weird how it causes this, this tension. And there's a number of different reasons for that. We won't get into all of that. But this is what I want us to understand, is that signs are here for a reason. Signs point us to Jesus. And what's supposed to happen through a sign when the miraculous happens is it's supposed to say we're on the right path. We're on the right trail. We're trusting our Father. I can't see what's here. I don't understand. Am I going to die when I go to Judea? I don't understand why I can't run to Lazarus, but I'm going to trust you, God. And when I trust him, somehow in the end, we get to see a sign that God was present and he was alive. And what that sign should lead to is not just like, wow, I was entertained by a sign. 
or not, wow, man, I want more miracles so we can get the hype going. It's the fact that God is present. And he's affirming his presence. And he's saying, out of love, I want you to be able to experience the fullness of my presence all the time. So I'm really glad that I wasn't there to heal him in that way because you've already known that kind of healing. I'm about to show you a whole nother level of it so you can experience a greater level of limitless where you can know me and walk with me. Signs are so important that way. But here's the thing about signs and about wonders and about miracles is that we don't get to control them. We don't get to tell God how they work. That's what we don't get to do. And that's the, that's the tough part is because there is a God who is all-powerful and has everything. And there are moments when I cannot figure out why God will not do this. Because it seems like it's for his glory. It seems like it would be loving. Everything seems like he should do this right here. And yet for some reason, with all the prayer, with all the fasting, with crying out to God, there are still moments where I just have to say, God is God. And I don't get to tell him what to do because he will reveal his glory and he will be victorious, but I may not understand what that looks like yet in this situation. For some people, that's a cop-out. Let me tell you, there's two different ways that people feel this is a cop-out. One is they feel this is a cop-out because they say, great, so when God doesn't show up, you're just going to say, well, that was God's sovereignty. But then anytime you see something cool happen, you're going to claim that was God. Right? Yes, exactly. And eyes of faith see it one way, and eyes of doubt see it another way. For others, it's a cop-out in this sense. In the sense that, so when... This doesn't happen because you don't have lack of faith. You're going to claim it was God's sovereignty. And yet over here, when it does happen, you know, then you're going to claim that, that there was faith or whatever and that, and that God had. No matter what, this is what true faith looks like. True faith looks like this. When we don't hold the power, but we believe in a God who does. And when we aren't in control and we aren't the ones who wield it, but we do not get fatalistic or despairing thinking that God can't show up right now and do the incredible. Because he can and he does and I've seen it and many of you have too. And you've seen him do amazing things. And to maintain a place of I trust God, I trust his heart, I trust him, I trust that he can do this, I trust he will do this, I trust that he'll be victorious. And then to learn to listen to him to get really, really close and say, what do you want to do in this situation? It may line up exactly with what I want to happen or what I think would be a good idea for you and for your kingdom or for me and my family, or it might be something different. I will trust you either way and I will hope for what you can do right now and believe for what you can do and I will never doubt your character when I don't see it go the way that I thought it would go. That's faith. That is deep, deep faith. And when that leads to a place of my experience hasn't seen the miraculous as much as I wish, so therefore I'm not going to hope as much, that's not faith. He can still do it. He's the same God, and he still does do it. Okay? There's signs. And one way or the other, he shows his signs. He shows himself. All right, we've got to keep moving. Getting very close to the... Uh, to the 
culmination here. So verse 16, this is going to be another study project for you if you want it. Um, He says, so Thomas, called the twin, (laughs) I love this part, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Dude, Thomas is awesome. Uh, You know, Peter gets so much of the attention, and we get to see Peter's character of being the bold guy who jumps out there and falls in. And you see John as like, well, I think we don't see John's character as much as we should. He's a great one to study too. But Thomas, man, the thing we know know the most about Thomas is he's the guy who wanted to touch the hands and touch the side, and then he would believe then. But if you go and look at all the passages about Thomas, they're all the same. And they all have these different angles, man. Here's the cool thing about Thomas is he was a follower of Jesus. He had a hard time trusting Jesus beyond what he could understand, but he still followed. And he said, I'll follow you. Okay, this is going to kill me, but let's go. All right, fine. And there is, for some of us, that's where we kind of hit our ceiling in our following of God. You know, like, I will follow you, but I'm not going to actually believe that you're going to do something amazing here. I'm just going to believe, like, clearly you're God, so... I'll do it your way and I'll obey you, but of course I'm going to get waxed for this, so there's that. You know, thanks. And I think we get cynical and we get depressed and we get despairing and things like that, but we still actually obey. That doesn't mean we're not a follower, but it does mean we're not experiencing the full abundant life of who Jesus is because we're not trusting him fully. There's a whole lot more to actually trust. Go study, Thomas. You'll get a lot of laughs out of it and you'll have, uh, it's, it's good. So, all right, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Four days, maybe you know the whole thing about the Jewish uh, understanding that, after, that the, the spirit or the soul hovers around the body for three days hoping to get back in. And most of the commentaries will tell you about this. I don't even know what that's about or where it comes from. But what you need to know about it is throughout this story, this is what's happening. You remember in the Old Testament when there was the prophets of Baal and there was Elijah and they were up on Mount Carmel and they tried to call down fire from heaven and nothing happened and then Elijah comes up. And he's like, I'm about to prove God to you, Okay. And this is what we're going to do. Dig a big trench around the altar and start dumping water. Dump it. Just keep dumping it. Keep dumping it. This whole story is a picture of Jesus saying, dump the water. I'm waiting. I'm not going when my, son, when my friend Lazarus is dying. I'm not going. And they're like, they're going to stone you. I don't really care about that. You know, uh, Thomas freaking out. It doesn't matter. And he comes down. And it, now it's four days after beyond all hope when anything that the, that the, the Jews could have believed could happen. At this point, it's all gone. It's now gone. All the water's been poured on. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. True statement. But listen to this. Martha gets a bad rap in another story, but listen to this. Verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Don't doubt Martha's faith because it's there. It might not be a mountain of faith, but there's there's a little bit of it. And that's all he needs, you know. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. How many of us have done this? where God wants to make a promise and we don't want to believe it too much for fear that it won't come true. So we're like, 
we theologize it. We're like, yeah, I know. In the end, he'll come back to life. We don't want to fully possess the possibility that like the amazing God who rose from the dead is here present today and still wants to be active in our lives. So we kind of push off. Like, I know you're there, but I'm going to hold you at this arm's length. That's what she does in a, in a minute there. And Jesus, and she might have even been baiting him a little bit. Like, I'll give you this much, Jesus. What else is there? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Hear that. She's looking at the event in the future as the hope. And he's saying, look here. Don't look forward to something that will happen. Look at me. Look at me. I am resurrection. I am life. He who be- whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you, Martha, do you, Parker Ford Church, believe this? You believe it. Here's the thing about these I am statements that we've been going through. The I am statements are not about what God represents and they're not about what he accomplishes. They're about who he is. They are not adjectives that describe him. Like I am the light is not an adjective that describes describes him. What it is, is it's a category of his nature, of his character that we need a name for. Light does not exist outside of God. He created it. Life does not exist outside of God. He breathes it. That's a category of who God is. And so if we understand light as something apart from God, then we don't understand it yet. If we see truth as something apart from the person of Jesus, then we don't understand truth yet. We think that resurrection is a thing that happened to Jesus or something that he accomplished and something that he'll accomplish for us. That's a false reading of the scripture. What the scripture says is that he is the resurrection. In other words, Resurrection is a part of who Jesus is. And all resurrection is, is a part of his character and a part of his nature. Why is that important? Because resurrection isn't something that he will do. It's something that has already happened. We experience and know resurrection by being in Jesus. When we are in Christ, then we are in the resurrection. All things exist in him and for him and return to him. I used to ask myself this question. What would have happened if Jesus died and and he was the atonement for my sin? He was the sacrifice and he paid the price and justice was, was put in order. And then he never rose from the dead. Would I still go to heaven? I used to ask myself that question. And then I realized it was one of those questions where, like, if you ask God a question and he won't answer your question, he asks you another one, that's where he was with me. Like, would I still go to heaven? And his question was, do you even know why I saved you? Did you think it was for heaven? Do you remember why I created you? I created you to be in a deep, abiding relationship with me and to reveal my glory. And if I'm still in a tomb, you can't have a relationship with me. If I'm still in a tomb then you can't reveal my glory. If I'm in a tomb, then there's no life because all life is in me. And the only way you rise again and have eternal life is when you die and you rise in me. Life is in me. Life is in Jesus. Love is in Christ. Outside of him, there's nothing. I die not on the day when this chest stops moving, but on the day when I say, I no longer live. You're in charge. 
and I trust you. So today, application, here we are. There is a different kind of attitude for all of us, no matter what our circumstances. There is a life that is not just unbroken, like Louis Zamperini in, in uh, Japan. There is a life that's irrepressible, that isn't won by grit, but it's by releasing and being in the presence of Jesus, and there's an overflowing fountain of life. That the grave, the grave and death, it's not just that Jesus conquered him, it's that he showed that they were a myth, that they're not a reality. Truth is in him. Life is in him. There is no such thing as death anymore for those of us in Christ. There is only life, there is only light, and there is only love. And it's all in Christ, and I find it as I'm in him. If I want an irrepressible joy that can't be beat down, that can't be taken away, then I find it in one place. Then I find it in Christ. I have life and I have joy because I have Jesus. And I have Jesus because he is risen. Yeah, let's pray. God, I know our temptation for each one of us today is, um, is probably similar. I know the temptation for me right now is that, um, okay, the sermon's done. Easter Sunday's over. And, um, and I'm going to go and have the meal with my family and we're going to have fun and we're going to step into whatever else we're doing without stopping to remember <laughs> that what we celebrated today is the fact that you are alive and I live not by my own reasoning, <laughs> but I live at the very word of God. And so God, I just ask that Jesus, you would continue to move in us and mature us to a place where whatever's next Whatever the next five minutes are after we walk out of this, this message and out of this service and out of this worship, that the next five minutes after that would not be defined by whatever else I've, I've seen and, and whatever my schedule is, but it would be defined by knowing what you're saying. You are the living God. And there is power and presence and love to be given. God, I ask that we would follow you as the risen Lord that you are. In the name of Jesus, amen.